Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the program. Today we're talking about the intelligence community and how they're modernizing their mission and back office IT systems. I moderated a recent panel at the FCA Northern Virginia ICIT Day. My guests were Gordon Bicko, the Chief Information Officer at the FBI in the Justice Department, Dave Bottom, the CIO at the Homeland Security Department's Intelligence and Analysis Directorate, and Carl Mathias, the CIO at the U.S. Marshal Service, also in DOJ. First, we hear from Carl Mathias of the Marshal Service and Gordon Bicko from the FBI. My own trivia question is everybody thinks, what do the marshals do? The majority of what we do? I think everybody knows it, right? We chase prisoners, okay? Uh, Not fugitives. Uh, We do do that, and that's what gets all the press. But most of our budget and our time and energy is spent moving prisoners around the United States. So uh, when you think of marshals, usually you look in a federal courthouse, there's marshals in there, deputies taking care of prisoners. So we're moving them across country. Federal government outside the Department of Defense, we have the largest civilian airline. We move 188,000 prisoners per year. So uh, it's, a, it's a large number. So something you may not know about us, uh, but that consumes a lot of our, our time and activity. One of the things that really uh, take my time up, I'll, I'll just, it's fairly easy. I, I tell everybody who will listen that uh, 75 to 80% of my effort, time, energy, and resources are spent on the day-to-day, keeping the circuits alive, keeping the work, laptops working, keeping things patched, secure, you name it. It's the mundane stuff. And then we get into that remainder that allows us to do the new things. And so maximizing, uh, minimizing the amount I can spend on the day-to-day is important to me, and then maximizing that remaining 20% is important to me. Things that we're working on, we are modernizing our warrant and prisoner tracking and judicial security systems. Uh, We're taking that into the cloud using uh, business process management. Also, we look down to say, how can we make the life of the deputy out in the field better? So we've gone and and we didn't just say, well, what can I dream up from the CIO shop? Uh, We work with our operational division saying, what do you want? What would make your life easier? And good ideas come out of that. So we're trying to reduce shadow IT by just simply turning on the lights, more or less. And so as a result, now deputies can take their iPhones out with them. They can do identity management for us. Uh, is important. Uh, this may surprise you, but a large segment of our customers don't want to tell us who they are when we come find them. Um, so um, now uh, we can run license plates, we can run boat plates, we can uh, do fingerprint reading, we can uh, enter in read driver's licenses, uh, all from there and get, uh, with the cooperation and assistance of the FBI, pull back within a few seconds who that person is and identify them and potentially get a very violent person off the streets. So that's just a snapshot of what we're up to at the Marshals. One of the things that you mentioned to me is about, you brought in recently a CTO. You uh, want to talk maybe a little bit what, what her role sure. is and how that's going to help you maybe get out of that uh, 80, 75, 80% role? Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, back to that, you know, you spend a lot of your time and energy on just keeping the lights on. So we have spent a lot of time in the last four years, uh, rec- you know, basically re- uh, catching up on technical debt. That's how I would describe it. Uh, so what we're focusing on this upcoming year is a look inward in my CIO shop to say how can I as a CIO shop run better and more efficiently and meet the customer's needs better. I, I really want to be focused 
on the agency mission, not just the IT mission. That's the, the definition of a good CIO, is somebody who's thinking about, in my case, how do we get more fugitives in? How do we solve, close more cases? How do we protect the judiciary better? So to do that, we've internally reorganized my shop and created a what I'm calling a true CTO, somebody who reports directly to me, who's going to, and it's Christine Fennell, if you've ever met her, she is absolutely awesome. She uh, is going to map out where we are now, a true map of our current situation, and then develop that roadmap to say, where should we be in five years? And then even beyond that, we'll keep looking and keep adapting and keep moving. And everything we do is going to be bounced against this roadmap, and that roadmap's going to be vetted uh, not just through the IT shop, uh, but through our operational side. So internal reorganization going on. All right. Gordon from the FBI. Reflecting back on the comment that I made to you about trying to bring shadow IT out of the shadows and into the into the daylight, really the motivation for that is is understanding that the FBI has so many different programs and so many different field offices. We don't have a singular mission in the sense like Carl described for marshals. We've got public corruption and organized crime and civil rights and counterterrorism and counterintelligence and cyber intrusions and violent crime and healthcare fraud and white collar fraud and the list goes on and on. And the challenges across all of those vary. There are common things, common services that we should absolutely be providing, but the agents and analysts who are working each of those problems know better than I do, better than anybody in the organization in the IT side, what they need to tackle their mission. And so really the goal, the driver is to help bring those things to light so that we can share the successes in various locations and various field offices and empower the rest of the organization. That's the, the undercutting motivation around the comment to try to bring shadow IT out into the light. The world that we're in today, though, is, is a data-driven world. And that's really the challenge that we're facing and what we're trying to solve from a, from a technology standpoint. The example that I like to give around that, 2013, the big case was the, the Boston uh, Marathon bombing. I'm sure a lot of you remember that. The Tsarnaev brothers, they, of course, were not identified immediately. and we opened up a portal to collect information from the public and we collected videos and surveillance and other information that we could and in total that was somewhere around 50 terabytes of data and at the time that was an overwhelming amount of data and the way we tackled that problem was in typical FBI fashion we surged a lot of resources we sent hundreds of agents and analysts to look at all of that data and to try to identify unique things that could help the course of the investigation Fast forward to a couple years ago, the Las Vegas shooting, for, I'm sure many of you remember that as well. That was the, the big, unfortunately, domestic terrorism event uh, at the end of 2017. And the amount of data was, was a petabyte. So five years, 20 times the amount of data. And that reflects all the closed circuit TV, all the surveillance that was going on in the casinos in Las Vegas around the actual event itself. And so again, we tackled that problem by surging lots of resources, by hundreds of agents and analysts putting their eyes on, the, on all of those video, 20,000 hours of closed circuit video to try to identify if there's anything of, of potentially investigative relevance. We can't keep telling the story that way, though. We can't keep telling the story by when a big event happens, we're going to surge resources to solve the problem. 50 terabytes that, met, that, that Boston dealt with a few years ago, pretty soon that's going to be a normal investigation in a normal field office. In a, in a small town in the middle of nowhere that might have a large-scale event, unfortunately, and we can't send hundreds of agents or analysts every time. So the big focus for us really is 
how do we solve that problem? And that comes to a, a few things. One is how do we think about data in better and more modern ways? How do we think about triaging and using automation to help us identify and get through, the, through all that information in ways that can really help us do analysis, do assessment better and faster and smarter, and help the agents and analysts actually focus on the unique parts of it where, they, where we need them to apply their expertise. So that's a big part of it, is, is that data modernization. The other big piece of, it, of that, though, for us is, is improving the overall digital literacy of the workforce. We have to have an, a much broader understanding across the entirety of our workforce about the nature of the digital world today. There is not an investigative area, and that includes everything from gangs to organized crime to counterintelligence, where the amount of data being collected isn't growing exponentially like I talked about. And it's social media and online transactions and dark web transactions and Bitcoin transactions. All of that are things that are, are touching on every investigation. So we're focused heavily on developing programs to drive the overall digital literacy of the workforce to empower people across all 56 field offices to think about things and, and understand them and know what they can use technology to do to help them. The last thing that I'll mention around, around that that's important for us is, is being cloud smart, is getting tools and capabilities into the cloud better and faster to empower all of those distributed agents and analysts across the field to, to do the things that they need to do in order to tackle the amount of data that they're, that they're coming across. And that has one uh, critically important for me, ancillary benefit for, for those folks in the field, and that's improving our overall security posture. Today, when an agent or an analyst in the field encounters a problem, they aren't going to stop and wait for headquarters to authorize them to use a new tool. They've got a mission and they're going to solve the problem the best way they know how. And I want them to keep doing that, but I want them to do that in an environment where I actually know what they're doing to some degree, and we have some visibility about it. We have, as I'm sure many of you know, all, all sorts of rules about evidence and how when we collect information, it has to be preserved and used in order that we can demonstrate chain of custody and, and ensure the integrity of that information. So when that happens in a distributed way in the field, that creates some potential risks and challenges for us. So the more we can leverage the things that I already talked about around smartening the workforce, improving the way we handle data and, and leveraging cloud tools, the more we can address a lot of those security and legal compliance risks. As you went through the data, one thing that came up just occurred to me was Joe Klimovich, the DOJ CIO, spoke at a different event, and, and they, uh, the Justice Department was kind of sent out his prepared remarks, and he talked about a new data strategy that Justice was, uh, had just released, was launching. So without asking you about that data strategy specifically, but what is the FBI's data strategy? Do you have a chief data officer? Is, is that part of kind of your short, long-term process or, or, or plan? And we do have a chief data officer. Her name is Maria Vora. A number of you here I know have had the opportunity to meet and interact with her. I know Dave knows her from, yeah. from uh, IC chief data operations. The overall data strategy is, is fairly complex and sophisticated. For us, we've spent a lot of time trying to develop it. But really what it comes down to is us doing a better job of, of understanding our data assets, understanding the attributes around all of that data, and understanding the roles and responsibilities of the people so that we can marry those things up in smart ways and we can give an agent or an analyst the ability to explore that data quickly and easily. Today, unfortunately, because we've built this series of silos over the years where we've acquired different capabilities and built them in these silos, it, it, it is a burden on the workforce to, to search and, and to even know that those repositories exist and then to go out and search them. And if they don't have access to find the right way to get access to them, that, that all is, is incredibly cumbersome. So the strategy is really designed around transparency of what all the data assets are, transparency of who should be able to use them and under what circumstances, and then allow the tools and the automation to help people with, 
discovery and, and analysis of that information. We have to take a break. You just heard from Carl Mathias, the CIO of the U.S. Marshals Service, and Gordon Bicko, the CIO of the FBI. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated at the FCA Northern Virginia ICIT Day. My guests were Gordon Bicko, the FBI's CIO, Dave Bottom, the CIO of the Homeland Security Department's Intelligence and Analysis Directorate, and Carl Mathias, the CIO of the U.S. Marshals Service. In this segment of the show, we hear from Dave Bottom, the CIO of the Homeland Security Department's Intelligence and Analysis Directorate. I got there in uh, 2016 with two charters in mind. So, so that the, the first task was to echo Carl's point, hey, you know, we, we have to work off our technical debt. And the strategy there was uh, adopt shared services. So when 10 migration and cloud migration, those were the, that's the strategy to work off the technical debt, right? So you know, we want to adopt on the high side, certainly the, the services that Gordon provides from, from an FBI standpoint, the services that CIA and, and NSA provide from a cloud computing standpoint, identity management, data services, the things that you know, make, make things go in terms of actually managing data and then you know, providing our analysts the analytic capability on top of that. That said, uh, same, same set of challenges on, on the unclassified side. You know, within the department, the IC parts of the department are very small you know, in terms of the overall you know, context of the department. You know, DHS, about 250,000 people or so, you know, predominantly unclass, right? INA, just in terms of numbers, 600, right? So, uh, while we do have an intelligence enterprise within the department, each, each of the components has what I call a J2 shop. You know, the, the SCI environment, while it is growing, uh, it's, you know, compared to what, where our decision makers are and where our operators are, you know, that they work in the unclass environment. So adopting, you know, where the department is going from, from a cloud strategy and a mobile strategy makes, makes perfect sense to make sure that we're getting, how do we make sure that we're getting actual intelligence that might start on the high side? or might start with a match between data the department has acquired. You know, I, I ran a couple of acquisitions when I came into INA. I never talked to an acquisition attorney, right? <laughs> but, but, but I talked to the privacy and CRCL attorneys every day. So just to give you a sense for uh, you know, what, where, where the department's interests are. But you know, the, uh, the tip or the cue might you know, come from, from the high side. We need to make sure that we get that, that, that information, that you, know, you need to take a action uh, out to a decision maker or an operator as, as quickly as possible. So gone are the days where we're, we're going to build dedicated solutions to do that. You know, we're, we're going to leverage the, the capabilities that are, that are out there in, in the unclassified space to stitch those together to deliver those capabilities. So that's the that, that's where, where we are from an INA standpoint right now. So we're going to get to your questions, so start thinking of them. But I'm going to ask Dave my uh, one logical follow-up. Can you maybe give us maybe a little bit of an update on some of your, your initiatives in terms of how are you leveraging those other capabilities? What shared services, I'll use that term very broadly, are you either looking at or have moved to or will be moving to in 2019? Like, what, if, if we have the conversation in a year from now, what's going to change? With an eyesight, so, so John talked about eyesight this morning. You know, we're, we're using each of, those, each of those services. So whether it's identity access and management, data management, uh, C2S, NSAs, uh, IC GovCloud, transport with, with NRE. The goal there was to adopt all of those services. I probably didn't mention the other charter uh, that, that I got from, from General Taylor when, when he brought me over, and Dave Glowey has, has continued it, is, hey, we have a lot of data with, within the department that you know, if, if we manage it right and analyze it right, 
and compare it and integrate it with that data that our IC partners have, you know, that's going to allow us to have an actionable insight that we wouldn't have otherwise had before. So, so data is, the, is that currency. And that's, that's where we spend the majority of our time. So, you know, Gordon mentioned you know, working with Maria. I, I spend much more time with the CDOs, chief data officers, as the, the IC the CDO for, for DHS than I really do in my CIO job, right? Because the, the, the focus there is to work the shared services on, from an infrastructure standpoint, and uh, my focus has been much more on the data side. All right, excellent. All right, questions. This is why they like to do these electronic questions, and I hate electronic questions because <laughs> this is why. So come on, guys. Really, otherwise I'll ask. All right, let's, let's go down the path of data a little bit more because I think that was the common theme that cut across everybody. When you talk about tools and capabilities and analysis, and maybe Gordon, I'll start with you. One of the things you talk about is we can't continue to bring in analysts and analysts and analysts. So you have some tools today, I'm sure, yep. and you hopefully want more tools later. Can you talk about maybe through what you're maybe at a high level, what you're looking for, or what you'd like to, to get from industry, if you will, or get from other people in government to, to beg, borrow, steal from them? So I think the answer is all of the above, right? We're, we're building tools, we're buying tools, we're trying to beg, borrow, and steal from, from other folks. There are always new capabilities out there in, in the world, and, and probably every vendor in the room or half of the vendors in the room who are in the business of selling services have got great tools that help with data. We have a number of programs in place where we're trying to do assessments of those and understand what fits into our portfolio best and smartest and quickest. And uh, sort of to Dave's point about not trying to, to build or, or, or reinvent when there are already solutions. But at the same time, in the data world, there are lots of great open source tools and standards out there as well. And a lot of the advanced data scientists in, in our organization and more broadly in the community want to use those tools. So there are a number of programs ongoing to try to make those available. Dave was hinting at some of the complexities across the multiple fabrics that we face. And so we, all, we have those challenges but we're trying to work through those in collaboration with some of our partners in the intelligence community to, to take advantage of, of open standards and open source tools that have been made available uh, and, and to share those across the workforce as best we can. Dave Carl? Sure, so from a data side, the, the challenge is data integrity. So, so, so we talk about supply chain management. You know, as we get into AI or machine learning, making sure we understand where the data came from, the provenance of it, the quality of it, how, how accurate is it, is, is critical for us. And, you know, especially as, as you know, each of the strategies that, and that John talked about earlier and, and Gordon and Carl have touched on them, you know, we share a lot of data. So, so how, how do we make sure that as we share data that that data has not changed? You know, so, you know, one, one way to get in the decision cycle is to, you know, get in people's supply chain. So that's, that's one focus area, at least for me. The other one, in terms of analytics, is explainability. So, uh, you know, we, we hear a lot about, you know, tra transparency. The reality of the situation is, you know, whether it's an analyst or an operator or uh, an investigator, how did you arrive at that conclusion? And, and if, mm -hmm. if, we're, if we're depending on automated capabilities to inform uh, the officer, the decision maker, we have to be able to explain how that conclusion was arrived at, hopefully in English. You tend to get a technical answer, or you tend to get a math answer, and so. It's, but so for folks that are making decisions about who to take off an airplane, or who not to let on an airplane, or who to take an action on, getting to that recommendation in a way that they understand is absolutely critical. If I can just follow yeah, on please. on that point really quickly, Jason. For us, the the burden is I think even higher because the audience in the end is a jury, and you have to be able to have an agent or an analyst testify. We made this decision based on this information and this 
sophisticated neural network model with 20,000 nodes told us that that was the person of interest. That's not a great story to tell the, to tell the jury. <laughs> so that is a really high bar for us and something that we're struggling with right now to think about how do we use those tools. If you think again about the scale of data that I was talking about, we need them, but we need to use them in ways that we can relate to a, to a trial audience or to a judge. We had you know, full faith in these tools and here's why and that does allow us to introduce this as evidence. That, that's a challenge in a lot of the, the machine learning space right now. There's an active policy debate going on. There's been lots of questions that have been raised in various circles about some of the biases that some of these models and tools introduce, and that's something that we're very sensitive to. So um, for, if I could do a different take on the data problem, um, you know, as you work through, we're doing a lot of modernization efforts uh, at the Marshalls, and even prior to the Marshalls, uh, if there was anything that could take a modernization effort sideways really quick, it, it was always kind of came back to a data issue of some kind. And I can reach back, because uh, I won't embarrass them, uh, is the Air Force Research Lab. I was busy trying to bring financial data into a new system. And uh, we were using this new development te you may have, technique. You may have heard of it. It's called Agile. And, uh, we would get in, we would run these sprints, we would show that the data was moving correctly, and then we'd go to run it against the data and it wouldn't work, wouldn't work, wouldn't work. What we found out was that the uh, financial community there changed the standards every single year going back 20 years. And so the standard we had for any given year was invalid in the previous year. And, and I walked out of the Air Force Research Lab, described my record as nine and one. Uh, they did finally get 20 years back, literally, to solve it. But that's an example of the kind of issues you run into with data when you're trying to modernize systems because not only do the standards change over time that you have to deal with, and, and the automated systems have trouble understanding that, that humans do stuff like this. Also, authoritative systems, uh, there's not always a clear-cut definition of who owns, the, who is the authoritative person for, you know, for example, subjects, uh, people. Gordon, the FBI will tell you, we are, you know, right? That's right. Uh, NCIC, CGIS, up at CGIS, you know, so, and for the most part, I would agree with that, but there are other sources we pull from where the data is different, defined differently, it's yep. dirty, uh, it, some of it is structured, some of it is unstructured, and these are all things that when you're going through modernization efforts we've had to deal with. So, you know, those are one of those things where I'm going, I don't know what help looks like to, to help solve those kinds of problems, but that is a big problem for us. We have to take a break. You just heard from Dave Bottom, the CIO of the Homeland Security Department's Intelligence and Analysis Directorate. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated at the FCA Northern Virginia ICIT Day. My guests were Gordon Bicko, the FBI's CIO, Dave Bottom, the CIO of the Homeland Security Department's Intelligence and Analysis Directorate, and Carl Mathias, the CIO of the U.S. Marshals Service. In this segment of the show, we take audience questions. As Gordon was talking through the data providence issues and, and authoritative issues, blockchain is a question. Mm -hmm. And you can't go to a conference without talking blockchain. So maybe we could have a little blockchain conversation. It, is that something that's in your plans? Are you testing, piloting? Does it make sense for the IC community slash law enforcement? It's certainly something that we have to have the ability to, to use from an investigative standpoint because it's, it's not uncommon to encounter blockchain in one form or another now. And, you know, like I said before, Bitcoin, for example, is a perfect example. So we certainly, from that standpoint, absolutely. From 
from the, are we using it around our data management practices? Not really today, really. A lot more of what we're doing is, is a lot of the issues that Carl mentioned. You know, we've got these legacy issues of data provenance and different data standards that were defined across hundreds of different data repositories collected in all sorts of different ways over time where we're, we're sharing information across agencies, but we're not always doing it in the most efficient ways, or it's with the private sector, or it's with another government entity, and, and all those challenges are really where we're focused much more when it comes to, to data integrity and data management than anything like blockchain today. Dave or Carl, blockchain, anything? Yeah, I would just echo Gordon's comments. I, I think on, on blockchain and, and how we do data management, particularly how we work the data integrity, data integrity issues, you know, right now, from a machine learning AI standpoint, I haven't come across any capability that works well in a federated environment. So, you know, the strategy off most often is to put put the data in a one could be a logical place, but but put the data in one place and, and then let the algorithms run on top of it. Blockchain, you know, assumes that you know there's a ledger and you're going to make make changes on the ledger. But until we can get to a point where we can do you know federated analytics, I mean we. Carl t touched on search, I think. We have yet to, to uh, conquer the federated search problem. I mean, <laughs> we've been trying to do that for a long time. Until we get to a federated AI or machine learning model, I'm not, I'm not sure how appropriate blockchain is going to be. So, so I'm no expert on blockchain. I can fully admit that. Maybe the question is trying to get one step further is when we talk about the province of data and the, and the I find data, I give it to Carl, gives it to Gordon, who gives it to David, who then uses it as evidence, and I know I'm, I'm kind of making this up a little bit, but is that where, the, maybe that's where that question is going, could that, a ledger technology, a blockchain technology fit in there, or is it too, too early to know if, if, that's, if that's a solution to this problem of understanding who's touched it, what they've done to it, and how it's changed, because I think, and Gordon, in many ways, that's what you're kind, of, you're kind of getting to, is how do, we can't go to the court system and say, it was on the internet. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's... So there, I, there are certainly, we've seen, we've encountered proposals of people who, uh, various organizations who've suggested things like that. I, I, and I think the reality is our problems around data are more foundational today. Yep. Let's go to the next question up there. It's a shining light of shadow IT, bringing solutions into the mainstream. Um, the question from that is what's happening with the funding from other organizations and your organizations, I guess. And I don't think um, this is necessarily a question just for Gordon, but it could be for anybody. Because I think all CIOs deal with that shadow IT challenge. So talk maybe when you're addressing the shadow IT and then the funding that goes into that. Because we can all talk for Tara as well. I don't know that I'll hit exactly on this, but I can tell you uh, kind of the approach I've taken here is uh, I tell my staff, you know, the Department of Justice is full of lawyers, okay? So this may shock you. IT folks tend to get looked at like lawyers. You know, we're constantly coming up with, well, it says in chapter, verse, and such and such, and subsection of this, of FATARA, you name it. No, you can't do that. Don't be the lawyer. Don't be the, if you're going to be a lawyer, don't be the prosecution. Uh, be the lawyer for the defense, right? Find a way to say yes. Find a way to have them come to us looking for ways to do things. So we've taken that attitude and, it, and just as a cultural shift within the orga in my organization to say go out, reach out to the operational community and ask what are you working on? What do you need? What would make your life easier? Sometimes I think things that are science fiction are perfectly possible. Identity management, I mentioned that. We deal with that a lot, I'm sure, and especially in this community, uh, of who is that? So uh, that's a big problem for us when we're out hunting for fugitives and finding them. And so the question was simple. Could you get this out to the edge? We don't like having to go to a state or a local 
police and have them run call dispatch and run a, a license plate or run a driver's license to see if that's really them or not. We want to do it right from our iPhone. And uh, I set aside, set aside money for basically innovation for apps on iPhones. And I'm going, perfect, perfect example. Uh, let's do it. So part one, be open to the idea that somebody's going to come to you with, with something that you hadn't thought of and, and you need to open your mind to it. Number two, and this is the part that kills us in government because we get slaughtered when it goes south, be willing to take a risk that it will fail. Okay, they tell us be like. Can I just be improper for a second? And say you know people want us to be like industry, uh, and and some in some companies are perfectly fine with running an experiment. Uh, the government is talks like they want to be that way until you actually have one of your experiments go south, and then <laughs> then you'll get a little <laughs> help. <laughs> so I've decided I'll take the beating. Okay, uh, if, if, and, and let's try it. And so far. It's good. I mean, we, we know when something's not possible most of the time. And then uh, we go, and as, so, so this shining the light on shadow IT is really just about making people comfortable to come to you, uh, not thinking they're going to tell them no, but going, yeah, let's figure this out. Let's make it happen. And so you know, Project Shield is a classic example of doing that. Gordon or Dave, you guys jump in or no? Since I think the question was largely directed towards my comments, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give my perspective. I, I would like to be able to say we identify shadow IT and, and the proprietor of that comes willingly uh, into, the, into the spotlight and says we spent five million of our own dollars on that and here we're going to turn all that over to you and you can do it for us. But if anybody here actually believes that. There's uh, a bridge in Brooklyn you have? Yeah, exactly. So what, what the preference really is, what, I would, what we would like to do, what we're trying to do is as we build more shared services is to have more transparency around cost and to encourage people to leverage the shared services in, in better and smarter ways. Because if they did spend some amount of money, a few million dollars on something, if they did it entirely by themselves, undoubtedly they, they built an entire technology stack themselves. And while there might be one individual agent or computer scientist who really likes doing that and running all that stuff in, in some dark corner in their field office, the SAC in charge of the field office probably isn't so crazy about having that. And, and would be perfectly happy to say there's shared services that we can use. So really that's the, the direction that we're trying to take, is to let people know that innovation is great, we want you to come work with us on it, but we want you to do it building on top of these shared platforms. And we need to figure out better ways to manage the money from an overall centralized cost transparency standpoint to enable that. I'll just touch on the funding piece. So we, we, we've taken a working capital fund approach. So. I think, as I said this at the beginning, we, my team provides services across the DHS intelligence enterprise. So rather than go to CPP or TSA or ICE and say, you know, please, please transfer money from your budgets, you know, the appropriations process that, that doesn't work that way. Uh, we, we, we've taken, a, taken the approach of standing up a working capital fund. So, so the good news there is that you know, managing that fund and giving folks transparency into costs and capabilities uh, ha has worked really well. Uh, so, so that that's the the, fun, the funding strategy that we've taken to provide shared services across, you know, the department's intelligence enterprise, uh, in, in a way that makes sense for everybody. We have to take a break today. I'm playing excerpts of a panel I moderated at the recent FCA Northern Virginia ICIT Day. My guests were Gordon Bicko, the FBI CIO, Dave Bottom, the CIO of the Homeland Security Department's Intelligence and Analysis Directorate, and Carl Mathias, the CIO of the U.S. Marshal Service. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. 
Today, I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated at the FCA Northern Virginia ICIT Day. My guests on the panel were Gordon Bicko, the FBI's CIO, Dave Bottom, the CIO of the Homeland Security Department's Intelligence and Analysis Directorate, and Carl Mathias, the CIO of the U.S. Marshals Service. In this final segment of the show, we continue to take audience questions. Let me just ask kind of a broader question. When we talk about shared services, and it comes up quite often, and I know DHS and you kind of have the, for Dave, you have the foot in both worlds of DHS and the IC world. For Gordon and Carl, you guys are, there's a big push within justice uh, itself, the headquarters, to do shared services. And what it comes down to is sometimes it's cost savings, many times it's better capabilities. How are you moving in those directions? And are you starting to see some, I'll say, results in terms of, i.e., cost savings, more capabilities, a little bit of both? Neither yet, but it's going to come. I'll share something I told Joe Klimovich, Department of Justice CIO. Uh, when I first came in, I said, well, my, my goal is to not have a data center, not own any equipment, to get all my services from other components, hang a hammock in my office, and hang out all day. Um, watching the dashboards. Yes, watching <laughs> the dashboards, watching other people do my job for me, you know, uh, work Don't myself out of a job. Uh, i got to tell you, Gordon, you're doing a fantastic job Great. for me. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> And, and you think I'm joking, but we actually, I do not have a data center. My equipment is in two FBI data centers, and so, and in the cloud. I have told my staff we bought our last set of hardware, and first they thought I was joking, and now they realize uh, a couple years down the road, I'm not joking, so we're in the process of shifting everything we have to cloud service providers. The goal is, back to this 75% of keeping the lights on, I'd rather have my people spending their time thinking about how to make the mission better and not about how to make sure that circuit stays up, make sure that server is patched. There's plenty of other people who can do that better than my federal employees, right? So that's the goal. And so we share services constantly with, especially, particularly the FBI, who, all jokes aside, are fantastic partners for this. And uh, I, I cannot say enough good things about the, Gordon and his organization and how they have helped us out with that. But we do share services, ATF, DEA, BOP, we all, where we can, try and use common services. DOJ also has their own operations. So, for example, uh, I no longer own any email. Uh, that's run through Microsoft Azure through the Department of Justice shared tenant. And uh, I'm happy to have it up there. We popped a bottle of fake champagne in the office and had the real stuff later the day we got rid of our legacy servers. Yeah, I would echo the, the value of shared services for all of us. It's a little bit of a challenge for, for FBI because we do, again, live in the DOJ world and the IC world, and we've got to figure out the right balance. And and, and sometimes we, we're straddling the two and, and to figure out what the right shared service is to leverage and that covers the whole spectrum of things. Sometimes that is a challenge for us, but we've absolutely seen enormous value already in the shared services that we do use and our ability to work closer with our DOJ partners, with our IC partners, to move faster in developing mission capabilities, the 100% that's been the case. You know, as a, as a sort of a rough order of magnitude example, on, on the C2S, which is the high side Amazon classified environment, that's a shared service provided through iSight. So, uh, you know, John Sherman probably talked about some of that this morning. Uh, our ability to deliver applications with mission partners is an order of magnitude faster there than it would be if they were going to start from scratch and go through and do development, procurement of of a whole stack of infrastructure, deployment of it, security accreditation of it, all that, the fact that we can leverage shared services that are provided from our partners, in this case, in the CIA, and we can take advantage of a lot of the security accreditation they've done and other things that they've done. It's an enormous benefit. 
And Dave? So maybe I'll uh, take the opposite approach. So, so, so challenges to shared services. You know, a, a, as I said at the beginning, it, it's certainly the right thing to do in terms of working off technical debt, right? So, so the, the days of big CapEx investments, at least from a DHS standpoint, I don't know if they were ever there to begin with, uh, but, but they're, they're, they're certainly not there. So, so we've worked very hard to integrate services from various providers. The challenge there is, is, is that, you know, so, so how do we maintain configuration management of services, which is different than, you know, if you have everything in your own data center, you, you can, you know, you can see it, which is the second challenge is visibility. So in, in fault isolation. So, you know, when we do have, not to say we've never had a problem, maybe, with a shared service provider, but sometimes it's hard to chase that down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as, as we work across the spectrum, our ways of doing incident and problem management, fault isolation, that, that worked uh, when we were in, own in our own data centers, we're still trying to figure out as, as we work across the enterprise. So, you know, that visibility and time to fix a problem uh, it is an issue that, that we still need to work through. Excellent, let's go to the big board. Gordon, this one's for you. Talk about data science efforts inside the FBI. Any gaps, top of mind? There's a lot of gaps. The, the, the most important one comes back to what I was saying at the beginning around, around workforce. Data scientists and, and even not full-fledged data scientists, but people with data skills are in, are in relatively short supply in the uh, broader government community. And when you add in the additional security classification clearance requirements for the intelligence community, uh, and the fact that we're then competing to try to get the same folks that NSA and CIA and, and, and our other partners in the ICR, uh, it, it is hard to get the right folks in the organization who, can, who, who bring those skills to, to bear. And really, it's the approach then that we are trying to take now is to recruit people out of school who've got the right foundation and, and, to, and they come to the organization because of the commitment to the mission and we, we try to grow them in place as much as we can. But as soon as we do that and they get up to some level of skill and expertise, somebody here in the room makes them an offer for 50% more than they currently make <laughs> or, or double and, yeah. and some of them stay and some of them, it's a great opportunity and they take it. From a training standpoint, there's you mentioned also trying to get the workforce up to speed who's the current workforce. And I'm sure that's a challenge for everyone because every job, every mission is really, as we've heard many times, data is the lifeblood. Is there something or somewhere you guys have seen some training, some, some way that you've done it that's maybe a little different than just bringing people together and putting them in a classroom or making them watch a webinar? I mean, is there anything that comes to mind that you guys? Yeah, so we're doing a number of things that I can talk about at a high level or we're piloting things. The first is, we're trying to deploy some aptitude testing across the workforce so we can get a better sense of are there people who got innately the capability, maybe they didn't get the training or they took it as a secondary thing in school and it's not the focus of their job, but they could bring some of those skills to bear with the right attention and the right opportunities. That's one pillar. A second pillar is there are absolutely alternative mechanisms beyond our traditional training venues that we want to start getting people to take advantage of and that covers a, a, a pretty wide gamut of things. It can be on-the-job training, it can be taking advantage of, there's all sorts of startups out in Silicon Valley now who are offering sort of real-time data science training from actual data science practitioners. They're partly doing it, and I'm sure many of you know, because they're trying to recruit people through those programs to, to identify and spot talent, but there's no reason why we can't leverage some of that as well. And then the third thing that we've just started talking about doing, and this is going to be a challenge in government, is can we do things like mid-career rotations? Can we send people outside of government to gain some of that experience and then bring them back? And uh, we're exploring that now is what I would describe because there's some challenges to doing that, but it's certainly something that we're interested in. Dave or Carl, anything you want to add to it? Uh, we're a much smaller organization, the FBI, obviously. Um, so, 
you know, we don't have the internal talent there to, to work within, so we do go to the outside. Uh, I think uh, our issue has been uh, is we're kind of in the boring phase of data science right now, and that's the governance, establishing the standards and all that. And you got to kind of slog through this stuff before you can get to the really interesting things. But when we speak specifically to the gaps, I'll, I'll just lay a couple out for you. Uh, yes, we do have gaps, gaps we'd like to address. For example, because of limited resources in terms of our deputies, we like to conduct operations where we focus on a few cities to say, we're going to go into these cities and remove the most violent felons or fugitives out there, get them off the streets. Well, how do you pick those cities? So we have a high-tech method. Uh, we call it, we got a guy, right? You know, everybody's got that guy, you know, even if the guy is, is a woman. Uh, so uh, if that guy wins the lottery, we're in a lot of trouble. So we are going, how do we solve that? So that's one example. Uh, another example is how do you, in a more general sense, uh, given your limited resources, where do you put your deputies? We don't have enough to cover everything we would like across the 94 districts. Uh, so what factors do you look at? And so this is a combination problem of data science in terms of analyzing the data that, that comes in. But then also, I think there's an artificial intelligence element here to say that no single human is, is good enough to understand all the trends and all the data to identify what's most effectively going to reduce or, or improve our fugitive apprehension rate. In, by putting our deputy this many in this district and this many in that district. We do have a guy there uh, who does that, but, and he's pretty good, but uh, guess what happens out in the districts? Uh, they figure out what the formulas are and what do you think might happen there. You know, they kind of engineer things. So we're looking for more uh, objective ways to do this. Those are a couple of the gaps we're dealing with. Dave, anything? You know, one gap I might pick up on, uh, well, maybe two. Um, the, the, the first one, Ellen touched on it this morning. So, you know, magic happens when we put a, uh, an analyst or a decision or an operator uh, next to a technologist, next to an acquisition person. We haven't mentioned the A word, acquisition, uh, yet, uh, but, that, but that's critical. So that doesn't scale very well, though, because, you know, that, that implies that that's a very people-intensive uh, approach to it to pick up on Carl's. Hey, we have we have a guy. Well, we don't have the guys, right? And 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 they're certainly uneven in terms of who who we have the most of. So, where where can we bring AI agents or tools to the fight that we can make that magic happen without necessarily having to put, you know, three three people around a problem at one time? So that's that's one, and I think that extends to the training issue, and that that and you know to get to the acquisition side, get gets to the requirements issue. So. As most, as Ellen talked about this morning, you know, a lot of folks don't know what they want. So, fine, right? So, 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 how, how do we get at that? It, it starts with training, but but it's training it in those those three different three different areas. That's all the time we have for today. For this show, I played excerpts of a panel I moderated at the FCA Northern Virginia ICIT Day. The panelists were Gordon Bicko, the FBI's CIO. Dave Bottom, the CIO of the Homeland Security Department's Intelligence and Analysis Directorate, and Carl Mathias, the CIO of the U.S. Marshal Service. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 